live, interactive, and here to assist you if you need help. Dealing with addiction, mental health challenges, and more. This is Road to Recovery with your host, Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. And welcome to the show. Good evening. My name is Yona Bud. You're on the Road to Recovery here at 640 Toronto. We appreciate you tuning in. What kind of weekend are you having? Hopefully it's a good one. The weather seems to be okay out there. And uh, got a lot to do tonight. We're going to talk about monogamy, whether you can be married and have someone th- something else going on on the side. Apparently, it's a big deal. 65% of the women say so. I'm going to talk to you about my COVID meltdown. Yeah, got COVID-19, had a huge mental health meltdown. Talk about that. Why? Exactly. I did some research. Uh, sex assault victims seem to be continually assaulted online. Should that be a criminal thing or not? We're going to get to that later tonight. And we're going to talk about, um, we're going to talk with a great guy. He's, he used to be an engineer. Now he's a psychotherapist. He sold everything he owned, uh, to, uh, to find himself, so to speak. And, uh, right now we're going to get to the, kind of main subject for me tonight is uh, the, the whole situation with regulated drug supply. So what does that mean? Okay, so the, the article goes, Ottawa working to regulate drug supply in super significant move as deaths remain high. So what's that mean, a regulated drug supply? So there's various forms of understanding what this is supposed to be. Um, essentially, the idea was to you know, decriminalize for sure and then provide pharmaceutical-grade uh, drugs for people who, uh, who use them. So obviously those that use them on a daily basis to self-medicate uh, their uh, unstable mental health. And then there are those that just you know want to get high on a Saturday night. Uh, hard to do that today. You know, there used to be a day where a couple of guys could go out and buy a gram of cocaine and uh, go to a party, have a good time and, you know, not touch it again for a month. Now that gram of cocaine can end you up, can land you in uh, an emergency room with a fentanyl overdose. Uh, so we, we're, we're really worried about the whole concept. And, and I think that the article goes on to say that people are right, that they want to be able to get to a place where there is a pharmaceutical grade regulated drug supply. So understand how this works. If you are a regular drug user, someone who uses drugs daily, for example, and let's say you're a heroin user, if there's even any heroin left in, in Toronto, let alone Canada, I don't think there is, but any real heroin anyway, it's all mixed up and messed up with fentanyl and other garbage. Um, but if you're a heroin user and you're used to using, you know, if you inject it, you're used to using, uh, you know, uh, there's a, there's a, gra- a gradation on the, on the, on the uh, syringe, you know, you can see how many milliliters, how many milliliters, you know, you can measure out the amount that you're injecting. So normally you would do, let's say, two or three lines of that. So uh, 20 or 30 percent of, of, of 10 percent. So 3 percent, let's say, or 30 percent of what you'd normally, you know, what would fit in that syringe. That would be normal. But if that's got fentanyl in it, that could kill you. Even, you know, half of that could kill you. So the problem is people are expecting to use drugs that aren't what they expect to use. So imagine if all of a sudden you were taking Tylenol but it ended up working more like a thumbs or or something to help with antacid. It didn't taste right. It didn't feel right. Right? I know horrible example, but I'm trying to give you an indication here that people aren't out there trying to kill themselves necessarily by taking these street drugs. They're expecting things to be what they're supposed to be. That cocaine is supposed to be cocaine, and yeah. You know, everyone that sells drugs on the street cuts it. They they cut it up, so to speak, in terms of add other things to it to make it last longer so you sell more of it for the same money. So, you know, the real issue here is that people do not have access 
to safe drugs. So, for example, let's just say you're a heroin user on a daily basis or an opioid user on a daily basis. Otherwise, you're sick. You know, you're out there committing crimes to try to pay for your drugs and so on. Um, and now you have an access to something, let's say, like hydromorphine. So hydromorphine can, can be can be provided. It'll take the edge off of uh, not you know of not having the the opioid, so to speak. It, it is an opioid. So it's you know, but it's regulated. It would be clean. It would be available. Uh, it would come in in forms that made it easy to use. And for those that are weekend users, um, a safe access to, I guess, cocaine, ho- you know, heroin, and all that stuff. That's where this thing kind of loses me. I, that's right. That's right. I really don't understand how this is supposed to be similar, as they say here, a regulated drug supply similar to ba- to alcohol, tobacco, cannabis. Um, yeah, okay, but none of those really are. You know, I mean, they'll kill you long term for sure. But um, what we're talking about here is that there. You know, I, what, I, what I'm losing is the ability to be able to figure out how the mechanism works. So two guys decide to get high on a Saturday night. They go to some place and buy their clean, uh, real cocaine. So they're suggesting here that people will have access to it, but they may require a a prescription. Well, that works for some. It doesn't work for others, right? That works for some. It doesn't work for others. So, you know, we already have a system in place for people that want to, you know, try to get off opioids and they can get get, uh, methadone or suboxone uh, in clinics. And if you're on some government assistance, the government also pays for this medication. So there there are drug delivery or, you know, um, systems in place for people that have uh, drug issues and substance issues. Uh, specifically around opioids, where they can get some kind of medication to help them through the pain and suffering of not having it available. Because if you're a daily regular user and you're not using, you're in really bad shape. It's really uh, not nice to see. Um, it's, it's a real sickness. There's sweating. There's vomiting. There's aches and pains. There's horrible gut pain, um, you know, all kinds of, of uh, mental health uh, uh, unwinding and melting down and so on. Um, not something pretty, but we, I, I'm still trying to figure out here how this whole thing is going to work for the average uh, drug user, so to speak, right? Um, the person who uses it on the weekend uh, just to get high. So, uh, you know, we're going to come back to this later as uh, we get through the show um, and see if we can come, you know, come at it together perhaps, give it some thought. Um, how do you feel about it? How do you feel about having a regulated drug supply that people can go pick up what they need and uh, uh, not have to worry about dying like uh, over 30,000 people? have died uh, from illicit drug use using uh, street drugs tainted with things like fentanyl and others. So, um, yeah, man, this is a big deal. You know, there's a solution for how to treat people that have, you know, COVID or Omicron, right? Um, Now we need to come up with a way to treat people who are dying literally on the streets, uh, street corners, uh, from a dirty drug supply. So we're going to come back to that in a little bit. Uh, Right now we're going to take a little break. As soon as we come back, we'll do some more stuff. Hey, if you're in a marriage or in a relationship, listen to this. we got stuff coming up that you might be able to see somebody on the side if she's into it. We'll be right back on the road to recovery. You're on about 640 Toronto. Addiction is a serious issue, and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. 
And welcome back. You're on the road to recovery. My name is Jonah Bud. I'm your host this evening. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm with Stefan and Danny, and we appreciate you uh, hanging out with us um, on Saturday night. Hopefully things are going well. And if you're in a relationship and you're with the person you love, you might want to listen to this and kind of chat about it if it's something that interests you. I brought it up in a conversation with, with my wife, Pumpkin. Of course, that's not really her name, but that's what we call her. And my wife, Pumpkin, and I, we talked about this whole um, story, the survey that Ashley Madison, you know, the people that you can, uh, it's a, a dating site for married people, so they can see other people. Um, yeah, unto itself, I think, is a situation, but not, I guess, not for everybody, which is what this is all about right now. Wife said to me, hey, you know where your luggage is. So uh, we didn't have much of a discussion around this. Um, we are in a monogamous relationship, thankfully. Uh, at least that's what she tells me. Um, I've certainly been a good boy, but um, not necessarily. It's not necessarily a thing. After the pandemic, give couples lots of time to reflect on their relationships and recent surveys suggest that the contemplation didn't reflect well on monogamy actually so it's defined i guess as a committed relationship between two partners we're going to talk to a real expert here uh, who's going to help us understand this surprisingly 65 percent of women post-pandemic claim to not believe in monogamy at all so if you're not sure what monogamy is you can only be with one guy one girl one person Right, you can't be outside your relationship. Meaning, sex with one person is how I'm interpreting it. But um, interesting, surprised that uh, um, the the, Ma- the Madison Ashley Madison report also found that members believed that by leaning into mon- into non monogamy, divorces would decrease. Sixty percent thought so. Open mindedness would grow. Fifty three percent thought so. People would learn to be direct about what they actually want in their relationships. Fifty two percent thought that and there would be less pressure on one person to fulfill all their partner's needs at least half the people said that sabrina baldini she's my guest right now she's a sex educator who studies sex therapy she's also the founder and operator of after sex ed it's on tiktok and instagram how you doing sabrina thanks for joining me tonight oh i'm good thank you thanks so much for having me Okay, so been married 34 years to this girl, been married, been with others, been married before, engaged six times. Uh, you know, I, I've had some experiences. Dude, I don't get this. You know, like I just tell, tell me, give it to me. Like tell me this whole non-monogamy thing, open relationships. And is it just that I'm old fashioned or am I trying to hang on to something that's maybe not realistic? No, no. I mean, I don't think it's just that you're old fashioned. I think that there are different things for different people. Um, consensual non-monogamy, polyamory, open marriages, swinging, stuff like that. Those are all very different things. And I think people don't realize that right away. So I think when people think of, um, you know, breaking the the boundaries of monogamy, they, they tend to see it one way, but it can mean different things to different people. So Basically, basically, like there's so many different facets to it, but polyamory, as an example, would be having intimate relationships with other people that are integrated into your personal and social life, and they are a part of your family unit in a lot of ways. Sometimes they are, sometimes they're not, but they're close, intimate, personal relationships. And, you know, an open marriage would be you have one core you know, foundational relationship and you've opened the door in, you know, whatever way you want that to look like. Um, But consensual non-monogamy is basically just the umbrella for all of that. Um, And I wouldn't necessarily call you old fashioned. I think that um, 
Some people really thrive in a monogamous relationship. They like to come home to the same person every day. They enjoy that. That's how it's, that's how their drive and their, that's how their sex drive and appetite is satiated. And some people, you know, are curious and want to explore that. So, uh, I could, I, I could tear into this in 16 different ways. Like, you know, I, I always, I, God, you know, I don't even know where to start here. So, yeah, I appreciate that all kinds of people, I, stop laughing, it's not a comedy hour, but I'm just kidding. Um, the, you know, the, I, you know, I don't want to make fun of this because it's, it's, it's a serious thing, uh, because, you know, we're, I, you know, I deal with a lot of patients that come out of relationships where lots of <clears throat> uncomfortable, un- uncomfortable things happen and, you know, there's, you know, usually someone is outside the relationship in some way, shape, or form. It leads, it leads to lying, stealing, and cheating and all that kind of non, mm-hmm. non good mm-hmm. stuff. So I, I get that, you know, if it's an open relationship and you mentioned, you know, swinging and, um, you know, pol- uh, what you call it? Polonomy? Uh, Polyamory. Oh, polyamory, <laughs> sorry. Polyamory. Yeah. Um, but what we're talking about is, you know, I guess my question is this, and, and, and maybe we should get more to the sex part or, or not. I don't know. It's kind of hard to separate. You get married to someone because they're your someone, right? Okay. And, 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 you know, let's just say you get married to that someone or you move in with that someone or you live with that someone or you're with that someone committed to that someone in one way or another because they're your somebody, right? Um, yeah. And then, you know, you, you, I guess, decide together that you're going to have other partners. I, I know of situations with patients of mine that have tried swinging and they ended up, they ended up not married like three months later. So, you know, someone yeah. in that, someone in that swinging triangle, um, didn't like the whole scene, right? Um, right. what about the, what about all the, what about all the, um, what's the thing word I'm looking for? Like, how do you feel after, I suppose? Have you, have you worked yeah. with people that, I mean, you obviously work with people who are in non-monogamous relationships. Tell me how they balance it. So I wouldn't say I work with them. I, I study this right now and I'm oh, definitely study. Okay. exposed. Yep. Yeah, I'm definitely exposed to polyamory and know many people that practice it in varying different capacities and, of course, I've studied it. Um, I think that what um, what people, maybe such as yourself or lots of people, don't understand about non-monogamy is that jealousy, as an example, they don't run from it. It's confronted head on. So, you know, before going in, before examining or exploring a polyamorous relationship, there's a lot of self-exploration that you have to do yourself. So asking yourself, like, what is your personal philosophy on sex? Like, what do you expect? From your, is, is sex a make or break? Like, do you expect the person in your life to be able to satiate all of the needs that you have, romantic needs, emotional needs, intimate needs? Do you expect them to do all non-sexual activities with you? Like, what do you expect from your partner? And is it realistic that they satisfy all of that? But, like, that's one part. And then, you know, the other part is, what is your relationship with monogamy? Like, you know, did you choose it? Like, have you ever seen anything any different? Did it ever occur to you that you could explore something different? Like most people, they just have never even entertained the idea because there's really no other way to live. We've never even seen anything else. Um, and the other thing I started wanted to say, because I touched on it super quick, was, was, you know, you're like, oh, my God, these people don't end up married a couple of months later. And I understand that, but I think a lot of that has to do with potentially not setting clear boundaries in the beginning. Thinking it's all just about sex, it might not be about sex, it might be about intimacy, you're craving something completely different, and then not knowing how to deal with jealousy, and the the non-monogamous community has a word for that, and that's called compersion. 
they've created a whole strategy to manage it. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, I mean, I don't know how you grew up, but I grew up, you know, a long time ago, just judging by your voice, probably you grew up much later after me, but, um, <laughs> you know, just kind of judging that you're probably not in my age range. Um, but the, most people aren't, <laughs> but the, the, I grew up like, you know, you're, it's just not nice. It's cheating, right? So I guess this, it's not cheating if you have permission. Um, and then here's where I go with this. What if, like, first of all, I can go back to, you know, if someone, you can't find someone who can meet all of your needs. Um, I don't know about you, but, you know, I live in a world of compromise and I don't expect Mm -hmm. everything I need to be fulfilled. Um, There's compromise, right? Maybe I get this, but I don't get that. Uh, But again, that's me. And I don't want to try to project my personal thoughts on this. I want to be more open with you. Uh, But, you know, what about the feelings part? So, you know, can a non-monogamous relationship be non-sexual? In other words, you just, you know, someone that you go to the theater with because she she or he or they like the theater and the person you're living with, married to or otherwise, doesn't? I mean, or is this primarily a sexual context? It's just just so funny that you're saying this. I had this exact same conversation today. Um, I mean, lots of people, like, would identify like if they're in a polyamorous relationship and they said to me, I'm in a polyamorous relationship and I have seven partners, they'll say, and then it's implied in my mind that they're having sex with everyone, but they're not. So like, it could just be that it's just a romantic, affectionate, intimate relationship and that your other partners understand that you are engaged in that with them and that there is potential for that to get sexual and that you are very much open about that 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 door is open for them, if that makes sense. Kind yeah, of. no, it, it, it does. It, it, well, yeah, it makes sense as you're describing it. I'm still trying to get it through my, you know, many, many years of this doesn't make, yeah. this doesn't fit, this doesn't fit. All kinds of red flags are going off. Trying to, make, trying to make, trying to process right. this, process this in a way. Let, let, let's get a step further. So you've studied this. Sure. Have you gone? Have you studied it deep enough to? Um, or let me rephrase the question. Have Have you had a chance to be exposed to the impact on raising children, for example? Uh, do you raise your children uh-huh. then to? Do you raise your children? then to not be in in monogamous relationships um how does that kind of play out i wouldn't say i've seen the impact firsthand if that's what you're asking honestly we definitely did study something what you're referring to is actually in some ways called a polycule so some polyamorous people like what you're describing is polyamory and not necessarily just like a non-monogamous anyways non-monogamy is the umbrella (laughs) term and all of these different things live under it so you're describing polyamory in that this other person is integrated into my life and is part of my children's lives. And some people will live in a polycule. And that's a choice that they, that they opt to make. So they'll say, like, you know, this is my partner, this is your father, this is Uncle Joe, and this is Aunt Sam, or whatever, and we all love each other. And they, they make that work the way that they want to. Like, we're remembering that, like, this is, in many ways, uh, uh, very much a queering of heterosexuality. Like people aren't yeah, used yeah. to seeing this. Yeah. And I think yeah, that because yeah. you touched on COVID and I think COVID really pushed people to reassess what their feelings were around their uh, mental health, their jobs, their sexuality and the way that they wanted their marriages to look. And something that kind of was coined during COVID was called COVID queers. And lots of people came out during COVID and lots of people reevaluated their sexuality during COVID. And this jumped up too. And I would argue that this is a queering of heterosexuality. People are, are 
starting to embrace it more. Anyways, I cut you off. Okay, you're gonna. It's okay. You're gonna hang on for us. You're gonna come back after okay. break, right? We're okay. gonna do some more. I'm talking to Sabrina Baldini. She's a sex educator uh, who studies sex therapy and the founder and operator of After Sex Ed. You can reach her on TikTok and Instagram. We'll be right back. You're on the road to recovery. This is Jonah Bud, six forty Toronto. You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. And welcome back to the Road to Recovery. My name is Yona Bud. I'm your host this evening. Thank you so much for joining us. Hope you're having a fun, safe weekend thus far. And uh, if you're in a relationship and you're uh, listening to what we're talking about here, maybe you have the ability to uh, have more than one person in your life, in your relationship, physical life, sexual life, who knows, um, all parts of your life. Uh, I am talking to an expert. Her name is Sabrina Baldini. She's a sex educator who studies sex therapy. She's also the founder and operator of After Sex Ed on TikTok. You can get a hold of her through there. And uh, we're back here, Sabrina, giving my head a bit of a shake. And uh, we're back to this discussion. So what we're talking about, if you're just joining in, folks, is a non-monogamous relationship, uh, polyamory, for example. Uh, so, Sabrina, what are some of the things to consider for, for those that are thinking about navigating an open relationship? Like, what do you think is sort of the, what is that? paperwork look like or the line down the middle, the pros and the cons? What's that look like? I think you'd have to ask yourself some really intimate questions about, again, like what sex means to you. I think you'd have to ask yourself some questions about what you're hoping to gain from, you know, are you hoping it's going to fix your marriage? Are you hoping it's going to, you know, uh, fix your life? I think you'd have to ask yourself about uh, questions about how you handle jealousy. Like, mm, you know, are yeah. you a jealous person? Um, what does what does your jealousy look like? And are you because the thing is, like, I, like, I want to talk about compersion for a minute, because I think that's the first thing that people really talk about with consensual non-monogamy is that they're like, well, jealousy and betrayal and people are getting angry. Um, the non-monogamous community doesn't run from it. They talk about it quite a bit. And they've created this word called compersion, which is their answer, their counter to jealousy, which is um, experiencing joy in your partner's joy. So, I mean, it might be kind of foreign, like how does one, but it's really just a reprocessing of how you compute, you know, jealousy. And it's not even that you can't experience it. You're allowed to experience it. It's just how you manifest it, how you put it out there, like how you behave. So um, do you think, you think, jealousy, you think, I'm just going to jump. You think part of that jealousy for some is a positive in their relationship? In other words, you know, the person feels, oh, well, they really missed me, so I must be special. That kind of, that kind of thing or, or not so deep? See, like, this is the thing. I think that, um, like, exploring non- or even having conversations about exploring non-monogamy in many ways can be beneficial. But, like, I, like, I personally believe, um, I, I mean, I think many people would believe that human sexuality runs on a spectrum. And that spectrum is actually zero to six. And, you know, zero is exclusively heterosexual and six is exclusively homosexual. And then one to five is all this variation. Uh, and I personally believe that monogamy lives on that same spectrum. So I don't see why you wouldn't have people that are exclusively monogamous that are zero and then people that are exclusively non that are sixes. And then a bunch of people, I would say a lot of people scattered somewhere living in the one to five. And questions that you would ask yourself would be things like, you know, if I, if monogamy didn't exist, would I still do it? And that's, you know, a tough one. And I think some people can answer that really easily one way or the other. They're either a zero or six. And the, and 
the reason that I'm saying that is if you start exploring sexuality or monogamy in that way, like maybe I'm a one to fiver. Like maybe I don't live like exclusively, like, you know, I cannot be monogamous or I can't do it. I just, I have flexibility. So then now what does that look like? Like maybe you just really want to be wanted and you want to go on dates with people, uh, you know, maybe. So, so wouldn't really that, con- so hang on. Okay, so hang on. Let's jump in here. So wouldn't that conversation go like this? Hey, honey, you know, I'm really feeling like I'm lacking, uh, you know, my relationship, but I don't want to get too personal, but my relationship, uh, I'm married to an incredible woman, took us a few times uh, each to figure it out, but uh, we're together a long time, and we talk about stuff. And one of the things we talk about is, you know, are you feeling loved? Are you feeling, you know, celebrated? Are you feeling like I, I make you feel special? Like, we ask each other those questions, uh, because I never want to wake up and have her look at me going, you know the guy just doesn't even like care about me anymore and he, like I don't want to I don't want that I have a fear of making sure that she knows she's loved and wanted and the best girl in the world and all that stuff but I, I get it that people in relationships just don't get that that buzz and going on a you know going on a on a uh, I'll give you a great example when I have patients that mm-hmm. break up relationships because one is sober and the other isn't let's say um, and they're not sure what to do I'm never going to survive again she was the love of my life he was the love of my life they were the love of my life and then they mm-hmm. go on like one of these dating apps like just like tinder or something just to see if people have an interest in them and they're so surprised that they got like seven likes and that's that's sometimes that's just enough right um yeah yeah so there's a lot of celebrities out there cheating though right there's a lot of like adam levine and you know ned fulmer from the try guys and apparently long-standing extra and we're hearing about it when it comes out and no one's talking about these non-monogamous relationships we're still looking at them as if this is a horrible thing and they you know, they stole from someone. Um, how, how do we get there? Like, I know in the queer community, this is very common, right? Non-monogamous right, yeah. relationships seem to be very common. Um, yeah. It comes from places, you know, from, from a place where that's just the way it's always been. Um, you know, how do, we, how do we get to a culture where this is okay? I think it's just it's embracing, in my opinion, embracing the the zero to six, like embracing that sexuality in many ways was on that spectrum. And that if, yeah. you know, you can, I, I firmly, firmly believe that, you know, let's say you're a zero in your orientation spectrum for argument's sake, and you're exclusively heterosexual. I think that somebody that's a zero can very easily understand that one to six exists. Like, I think that you can get that. So I think that even if you're a zero, even if you love going home to the same person every day, the notion that 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 some people struggle in that, I don't think is so foreign. I think that you can get it. I think that anybody can get that. I think we just have to get to a place where we actually, in some ways, you know, identify polyamory, consensual non-monogamy as a as a queering of sexuality, like as a queering of heterosexuality. Because in that same, I'm not saying it's exactly the same, but like in that same spirit, somebody that polyer non-monogamous would you know have to come out potentially like are they coming uh, out about it okay okay so right? yeah um, you know, I, are they fearful of judgment and i and i can see why they would be like do you understand why they would be and in that same spirit are you like okay well i don't want to judge these people this is just the way they want to live yeah um That's- 
Yeah, I get it. You know, we see it. We see it in some. Um, there are some religious groups that uh, live in Canada and the United States and abroad, where they, you know, there are multiple wives, and it's just a thing. And yeah. um, you know, it's it's the whole culture, and there's sister wives, and you know, it, it's it's yeah. it's a thing, and they and they seem to live happily and comfortably under some you know religious um, religious regime that that's kind of what they what they believe in. Um, this is different or the same. Yeah, different. I mean, I like that's kind of gray and murky. Like I, I'm as far as like you're talking about, like this is part of like a foundational belief. Like this is a religious thing. So like, I'm not sure that everybody's freely going into this in the same way autonomously, you know, uh, as just, you know, consenting adults who are having these really, really intimate discussions about boundaries and everything like that. I mean, I think when, organized religion and power and things like that start coming into the picture that's a little bit murky and that's not definitely not my area of expertise but you know people that are um you know two autonomous human beings are not influenced by that they're just influenced you know by their own selves like by each other they want to live a certain way i that's a different thing I'm talking to Sabrina Baldini. She's a sex educator who studies sex therapy. Real quick, we got less than a minute. How did you get into this field, number one, and how do people find you? I got into this field because it's literally like the love of my life. We talk about sex all day. I um, I started teaching sex education at University of Toronto when I was a student there at the Sex Education Center. So if any university students are listening, I would jump into that. Um, And I have been... (laughs) volunteering in so many different capacities as a community sex educator. And that's how I got into it. So there's two different kinds. You can be a teacher and you can jump into sex education if you teach physical education or something like that. Or you can be a a community educator such as myself. So you can look at any community organization that's looking for teachers, volunteers, people on the phone lines. I've worked at crisis lines. I've worked in public health. I've I've been everywhere. So I kind of got into it in in a bunch of different ways. And and people can find me on Instagram and TikTok and at www.aftersexside.com. Sabrina Baldini, thank you for joining us this evening. A very exciting conversation. Maybe we'll talk again. You're on the road to recovery. This is 640 Toronto. My name is Yona Bud. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. And welcome back to the show. Thank you for joining us. My name is Yona Bud. We are on the road to recovery here at 640 Toronto. We all appreciate you being being out there and hanging out with us tonight. If you want to check in with us on something, give us a call here, 416-870-6400. going to talk to you right now about the problem with post-traumatic stress after a sexual assault. Okay, so here's the deal. The deal is there is a guy... Um, I'm going to go on the limb and say creepy guy who worked in a church in uh, Hamilton. His name was Bruxy Cavey, um, and he was um, no, he became known for uh, sexually assaulting uh, several people in his church, in particular um, this mega church in in uh, Hamilton, I believe. And uh, he he was he clearly was found to be and admitted that he had extracurricular extramarital relationships uh, out with this particular. Uh, person and several thereafter came out of the woodwork and you know the person who came forward as with so many victims understand these are victims okay as with so many victims came forward to talk about the sexual abuse and as a result of that somehow got outed online 
and the sexual assault doesn't stop with the physicality. It continues online, the harassment, the degrading conversation, the, the, the horrific names that they've called her, and so on. So that's the question here. This is a criminal act, in my opinion. I want to know what you think. Is it criminal act? Is it a criminal act to continue to harass somebody in a uh, assaulting kind of way online, especially if they've been a victim of an assault and now they're trying to? So apparently, I guess you know some of the supporters of this fella um, thought that uh, you know he was getting a rough a rough go of it because he you know he was found uh, completely guilty of um, you know inappropriate sexual behavior with a with a church congregant. Um, which unto itself is the wrong thing to do at, at every level. You know, we just came off a conversation about non-monogamous relationships. This is not what this is about. This is about someone with power using that power over someone else to compel them to do things that perhaps they would not do or get tricked them into believing that the things they are doing, they are doing with the outcome, the expectation of an outcome that's not going to be so for example i'm not i'm leaving my wife i'm leaving my husband um you know you're, you're you're so special to me uh you know let's not tell anybody about this relationship which is how this kind of went um and then when it became clear that this was not the only relationship he was in and the fact that this woman you know realized that he's actually taking advantage um you know not wanting the relationship to be shared it being a secret and so on the whole thing started to get really uncomfortable and under the criminal court there is no consent if sexual interactions were induced by someone abusing a position of trust or authority. The criminal charge against uh, KV hasn't been proven in court yet. Uh, I'm not sure where where that stands uh, today. But this a person who uses the pseudonym Alana uh, says that um, with the hindsight of the imbalance of power between them, she alleges she had sexually assaulted her. I don't see it as sex. I see it as abuse, she said in an interview. So I deal with patients that have that are victims of sexual assault. I have several in my practice right now. Um, can't get into many details because I don't want to point fingers. That might someone out there might realize who I'm talking about. But let me tell you something that standing up. I've got a couple right now that are standing up to their to their abusers and going to court and going through that process. Some two and a half years later. Yeah. Salt took place, let's say, in one particular case a couple of years later. And uh, since then, that person's now have to live with the upcoming trial, all the nonsense with uh, victim services, which in some cases do a great job, in some cases not so much, uh, dealing with police, dealing with prosecutors, dealing with, you know, just trying to... Th- so the post-traumatic stress isn't post. It's current traumatic stress. You're in it, right? You're in it. If you're thinking about it and it's not conc- it's not concluded in some real way, in other words, you're, you can't sort of move on, if you will. I don't know how you ever really move on, but we'll get there in a second. But it's more about, you know, are you? Can you put start putting it behind you? Well, you can't put it behind you if there's years of waiting for these 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 cases to come to trial. And by the time they come to trial, usually the perpetrator, the bad guy, in most cases, the bad guy. Uh, has been, you know, incarcerated and for the most part, you know, not out on bail. They usually don't have great uh, sureties or people to stand up for them, typically. And they sometimes just walk away for time served during the two years that they're waiting for trial. And then the person who's been victimized continues to be victimized 
during trial, prior to trial, after trial, how do you treat someone for post-traumatic stress? I don't. I treat them current. I treat them with the energy and give them the energy, the strength, and the tools to live within the trauma that's current, because it's still traumatic. So we're going back to the story at hand here. What I'm talking about, it's traumatic to come forward. It's, a, it's difficult. It's almost impossible, which is why, unfortunately, the majority of victims do not, which is why bad guys continue to do horrible things. But when some are strong enough and brave enough and have the confidence and the support to be able to come forward, it's a really daunting, difficult process. Now, add to that the story of Alana. Let's go back to Alana. We're talking about how she came forward with this guy Cavey from this uh, from this uh, mega church in, in in Hamilton, who was taking advantage of her for quite some time, right? She's now being victimized by his followers online. So she's you know not only does she have to live within the the the, the confines of of you know coming forth you know against her church, which unto itself became a difficult process for her, right? Because she believes in it. She, this is where she gets her strength, her connection to her higher power. You know, it's hard to come forward against a, a priest, a rabbi, a, a, you know, a, so, you know, a church, a, a church uh, senior or someone in, in a community, right? It's difficult because now you're outed in that community. She says, she's, I've been called a liar, a scorned woman, an abuser, a homewrecker, and worse things not repeating by people who belong to the church or regularly listen to his teachings. In a statement, Cavey's lawyer said, there's no evidence that Mr. Cavey being involved in the harassment against Atlanta. Cavey may have significant support in the community, however, has no control over what his supporters may say or do. Continue to be victimized. Continue to stay in the trauma. You know, during during trials for, for, for sex assault, and, and those types of sexual abuse, or in, in some cases, um, uh, people who are being trafficked, um, it, the trial is horrific, horrific. Defense lawyers do all they can to make the victim and break the victim into, you know, recanting their story, making a slip, anything they can to try to get their guy or their person off, right? So you can imagine a quality lawyer, and there's lots out there, whose job it is to defend the scumbag who's allegedly known for this sexual assault. That's their job. That's what they got to do. They swore an oath to do so. You don't necessarily get to pick your clients in some cases, especially if you're doing any kind of duty work or duty counsel work for legal aid for the government. So it's, you know, government appointed, court appointed uh, defense, right? They got to do their job. That's what they're there for. That's what they're supposed to be doing. So now you're dealing with someone who's got being outed on the, on, on social media, who's, you know, waiting to figure out what's going to happen with any charges, if any, kind of on standby, can't really go, you know, walk into her community church like she used to. Now she's got to find another place. And the place we're talking about is called the meeting house, by the way. Right. And, you know, they're not sitting here, um, you know, according to the expert, according to the the, spe- the spokespeople at Meeting House, uh, not sitting here um, applauding, in, applauding Brooksy's corner, applauding for him. He has no part or knowledge in speaking out. The Post said, according to the court filing, yet while his actions are reprehensible, uh, are these are the actions? So are the actions of the Meeting House and the victim. 
the victim is not a victim by any stretch of the imagination, uh, the lawyer goes on to say. How is she not a victim? Anyway, the Hamilton police are opening a criminal investigation. My hope is that they uh, will proceed, and um, they said that they're trying that so far they have insufficient evidence to proceed. That means there's not enough people talking about it. Um, Danielle Strickland, who is a popular former uh, Meeting House pastor, resigned over her concerns that the church initially mishandled and minimized Atlanta's allegations against Cavey, and says, says the subsequent online hate directed at the compliant was absolutely shocking and inexcusable. So victims continue to be victims. That's the problem here. Victims continue to be victims. They continue to have to live within the, 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 within the um, constraints of whatever community they, they, they have to hide in, so to speak, right? Because how do, you, how do you go out after facing that community? How do you go out after, after facing these people and, and, you know, after kind of outing their, their favorite priest or pastor, so to speak? It's a difficult situation. And for those that are, that are non-church related um, abuses, those that are dealing with rapes and such, they, they, they are so victimized. They continue to be victimized even during the legal process. Perhaps sometimes even more so. Some of them just give up. I, I you know, I, I coach some, some right now. I'm, I'm coaching a couple of people through the process, trying to help them. Trying to, I can't really give them much therapy. They're in the middle of their, of their, of their trauma. But certainly coach them through how to manage standing up and doing and saying the right thing, because that's what they want to do. That's what they're motivated to do. They want to do the right thing. And wow. How proud can you be of people like that? The strength that they must have to be able to put that together and stand up against bad guys in the public, against all the scorn and all the nonsense you hear from silly people who don't understand what it means to be a victim and how to live within your own skin after you've been victimized. It's very, very difficult. It lasts sometimes for a lifetime. Anyway, when we come back, we got a lot more stuff to do. You're on the road to recovery. Big break coming up, so take your time. Go get yourself a drink, stretch your legs, do what you need to do. When we come back, I'm going to talk about my COVID mental health breakdown. Yep, after 30 months, I ended up with the CV with COVID-19, baby. And uh, I'll tell you, my mental health went into a spiral. I want to share that with you and discuss why. It's not just me. It's a thing, right? So when we come back, we're... I'm going to talk about that. You're on the road to recovery. My name is Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. Addiction is a serious issue, and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. And welcome back to the show. Thank you for joining us. Hopefully you had a nice break. You did what you needed to do, and you're back with us here on the Road to Recovery. I'd like you to join me right now. You can call in. The number is 416-870-6400. Have you had COVID recently? If you had COVID at all, want to hear about uh, how you felt, how it affected, specifically how it affected your mental health. So here's how the story goes. I was 30 months in up until last week, 30 months in without getting COVID, did everything possible. Um, my wife and I did everything possible to make sure we didn't get it. I have a 96-year-old father who actually ended up getting it, who's still in hospital, doing quite well, thank you. And uh, But the, the effects of COVID uh, on me and my family, specifically me and my wife, it, 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 I, I had real issues with the whole blame game, right? Like, how did I get it? Where did it come from? Who gave it to me? You could go through this whole kind of messy thing of where did it come from, right? 
And then you start having all kinds of fears of, you know, what, what, where was I? What did I do wrong? You know, all the guilt around where it came, you know, what, what, what I could have done differently and all the questions of, you know, um, you know, just everything. Did I wash my hands properly? I thought I did. Normally I do. Um, you know, and you start, for me anyway, I started really getting into my head. How about you? 416-870-6400 or 888-225-8255. Give us a call. Uh, we're standing by waiting for callers. Just uh, let me know how you felt. Let's talk about how you felt uh, during and after COVID, if it affected your mental health in any way, shape, or form. You know, it, it's it, there's... There's all kinds of mixed feelings that go with this, right? There's all kinds of issues around where this, you know, how people sort of manage it and the fears around what, you know, long-term COVID and so on. Um, it, 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 for me, it became a real sort of mental health challenge uh, a few days in. And I started, as, as you may know, if you've not, uh, not been on the, heard the show before, um, my, I'm a therapist. I deal with uh, patients in uh, in residential rehab at the farm in Stovell. We deal with patients in outpatient at Recover at Home, um, and I deal with uh, patients in a private practice. And, and I'm constantly talking to people about their mental health and helping them get through whatever challenges they may have, substance related or not. And and I live in it, right? I live in that world, and I'm great at helping others deal with their stuff. When it comes to my own stuff, I'm usually pretty good. But I suffer with. Uh, with social with with anxiety disorder OCD and ADD and I can tell you that during my um, my peak of COVID uh, I started melting down I had a couple of days of really having a hard time uh, getting my my mental health in check anxiety was out of control I just I couldn't you know I couldn't concentrate my ADD was out of control I was focused on all the wrong stuff I, I, I couldn't concentrate for very long I had to cancel a whole bunch of patients because I just couldn't focus and deal with you know their needs um, you know my OCD was a little out of control I felt myself more focused on things that weren't right in my place uh, which is the kind of OCD I have it's around uh, things being straight and, and, and orderly and so on it's more like that and not so much washing hands and putting my shoes on six times and, you know, things that uh, affect others that have OCD in a different way. Uh, but all of it converged and I was having a major meltdown, couldn't understand why, trying to keep it together, got a little snarky, got a little impatient, got a little angry. A lot of anger came out of this. I felt very angry that I had COVID. I felt very angry. Um, and I was, I'm not sure what I, who I was angry at. But I became very angry. So I started looking into this whole thing about how does COVID actually affect, affect your mental health? <coughs> Excuse me. You can still hear I've got some of it left, right? Hard to get through all this. Um, but recently publicized reports of paranoia, depression, and even suicide among some COVID-19 survivors has come as no surprise to Maura uh, Boldrini. She's a, a PhD and an MD, a neuroscientist and psychiatrist at Columbia University uh, College of Physicians and Surgeons. And in psychiatry, she says, we're interested in understanding the role of neuroinflammation in psychosis, depression, and other mental health conditions. So they're looking, they, they normally look at the brain and look at how the brain and neuroinflammation, so inflammation in the brain, uh, how that affects um, mental health. It's pretty clear. It's, they under, you know, they can understand how it triggers suicidal uh, thinking and so on, right? Um, so her colleagues recently um, asked uh, JAMA Psychiatric to review um, a study that they, they know what's known about COVID from a psychiatric perspective. So we look at the connection between COVID-19 and mental health. Okay, so I'm trying to figure out why I can't keep myself together. 
and I'm starting to look at some, you know, correlations here. So, uh, first of all, I know that when I'm not feeling well, I know that when I'm not sleeping properly, I know when I'm not eating properly, that my mental health is not in check. I, I, I know that. So I work hard at making sure I eat properly. I get the amount of sleep I need. I try to make sure I'm, I'm eating nutritious foods all day. I uh, try to keep myself, um, you know, um, satiated with food throughout the day. So I'm, you know, I, I'm never hungry. Hungry is not a good thing for my mental health. But we know that things like isolation, financial burdens, increased drug use um, due to the pandemic cause anxiety. But we also think that there's, according to the experts, that there's a biological change. There's an inflammation that's leaked uh, that's linked, excuse me, to our behavior and may provide explanations for how infectious diseases can affect your mental health. So we've known for a long time, according to the experts, that there's a link between viral infections and mental health. Okay, so COVID-19 is a viral infection. And the experts think that neuropsychiatric symptoms may be caused by the body's immune response to viruses and other pathogens. So it triggers the release of something called cytokines, and they systematically and locally in the areas of the brain involved in depression and other psychiatric conditions rather than the direct effect of the pathogen itself. So what's a, cyto- a cytokine, spelt C-Y-T-O-K-I-N-E-S? So it's cytokines are small proteins that are crucial in controlling the growth and activity of other immune cell system cells and blood cells. So when released, they signal the immune system to do its job. Cytokines affect the growth of all blood cells and other cells that help the body's immune and inflammation responses, according to a report in December of 2019. Cytokine, pronounced cytokine, a a type of protein that's made by certain immune and non-immune cells, has an effect on the immune system. So some cytokines stimulate the immune system and others slow it down. So they can also be made in a laboratory and they can be used to fight cancer and so on. There's, There's, you know, cytokines can be used in a positive way. But what they're finding is that the cytokines themselves um, can affect um, our small proteins that are crucial in controlling the growth and activity of other human uh, immune cells, uh, that they're small and membrane-bound protein-based cells uh, that affect the brain. They, it's, it, they get in the way of the brain telling itself, the right, giving itself the right signals, right? So what we, what we know about, about this is that when these cytokines are, um, are messed with, right, um, that the inflammation, that the, the systematic inflammation may unleash chemicals that trigger symptoms such as hallucinations, anxiety, depression, suicidal thinking, depending on which part of the brain's affected. So clearly that there's a viral impact on mental health. Clearly I was in a situation where my mental health was somewhat out of control for a period of time, not knowing why doing what I could to keep it under control, not, you know, using all my skills, all of my tools that I normally use. But when my resistance is low, my immune system is triggered. I don't have the same uh, fight. I don't have the same punch back that I would have had normally. And this, frankly, the first time, you know, in the past, you know, almost three years ago, right? This is probably maybe longer since the last time I had anything like a cold or a flu. And oh, by the way, my COVID is, was and is more like a horrible cold with, you know, some chest stuff. But thank God, nothing serious because I've had all the necessary vaccines. I highly recommend them. But there are, you know, you can understand that the evidence that a small amount of virus may be able to enter the brainstem 
and the cerebellum via circumvent, uh, circumventricular organs, opens, openings in the blood-brain barrier that allow us to sense and respond to toxins. In fact, uh, the little amount of virus that's been detected in the brain has, found in, has been found in these regions, which happen to be located near uh, circumventricular organs. So there are other types of infections, such as strep throat, that can also affect the brain and can create a, a, a cause chronic infection. Uh, and they've been linked to neuropsychiatric symptoms, such as obsessive compulsive disorder, tics, and so on, that you may see with people, for example, that suffer with Tourette's, right? They have these types of, of tics. I can tell you that in my case, you know, between the anger and the, the resentment and the guilt and just not being able to keep myself in check, slept an awful lot, you know, tired, still a little tired. Um, but, you know, it, I, I now understand more clearly. I should have, you know, probably understood this. I probably learned this a million years ago when I was in school studying to be a therapist. Uh, I must have forgotten. But now I clearly understand now that there are direct correlations uh, between the brain and a virus such that if you get something like COVID or strep throat or something that can, you know, can shock the system, um, it can absolutely throw your mental health out of whack. And if you're a person who doesn't typically, you know, have mental health issues, you may find that suddenly things are creeping in, right? And you're suddenly acting and, you know, feeling certain ways that aren't your norm, you know, a little more depressed, a little more anxious, perhaps, uh, feeling a little, you know, less, uh, less happy, less joy in your life and, and trying to figure out why. Sure, being sick takes some joy away. But what we're talking about here is real, a real mental health, a trigger that, that is um, clearly affected uh, by, by viruses, by viral infection. Uh, so there you have it. It's not completely my fault. Um, horrible disease. I can, only, I can only imagine those that were affected long before we had a chance to vaccinate and, and protect us from being hospitalized. It's a terrible disease. Uh, my 96-year-old father has pneumonia and uh, COVID. He's uh, in a hospital right now. Hopefully he's listening. Hey, Dad. Uh, but thankfully, doing amazing, doing well, starting to come off his oxygen. And uh, he's like the EverReady battery. He's had COVID three times and just seems to, fortunately, so far anyway, um, thankfully he's able to just kind of dance his way through it and come out the other side. Um, you know, maybe uh, a little smarter. Who knows? He's uh, certainly being looked after very well uh, in the hospital that he's in, in the Toronto hospital. And I got to tell you, mental health care in this city is spectacular. The nurses and medical staff in these hospitals are just above and beyond anywhere else I've ever been in my life. So kudos to all of you. Thank you for all that you do. When we come back, we're going to talk to a really cool guy. He's a, he's a psychotherapist, but at one point he was uh, an engineer, decided to change his life, sold everything he owned, and uh, went and started to find himself. And now he's helping others kind of find their own way. We'll be right back. This is Jonah Bud on the Road to Recovery, 640 Toronto. You're listening to Road to Recovery with Jonah Bud, only on 640 Toronto. Welcome back to the Road to Recovery. My name is Jonah Bud. A little technical glitch here. Uh, we're looking to find our guest who doesn't seem to be available, so we're just going to keep moving through and having a conversation about some other stuff. Uh, thank you for joining us. And by the way, it's uh, like I think 10.20, 10.21, something like that. Do you know where your children are, your loved ones? If not, you need to... Uh, 
you need to find them. And if you can't find them, you can give 911 uh, a call, and we will do what we can to help you. you can give us a call here, 416-870-6400. We'll uh, provide some support if you need it. But 911 is the way to go if you don't know where the loved ones in your life are and where they need to be. Uh, anyway, we're going to uh, talk about a, a homeless in high school. There's a story here uh, how a unique shelter uh, in Toronto is helping teens beat the odds and stay in school. Uh, we're talking about um, a young person. We're going to call her Anna. Uh, she's 17 years old. She begins her trek to school. Um, she boards her bus in, in North Etobicoke, the first of three buses that she needs to take. Um, and um, we are uh, looking at, you know, the transit moves seamlessly for her, right? Um, but uh, the reality that prompted her guidance counselor to ask for understanding from her teachers as she hustles into late. Hustles into class late, right? She's doing the best that she can, um, and um, ends up in a situation here where you know she's late usually because of all the buses, but she's doing what she can to get from her shelter to school, right? So um, the other days, study she studies online, so she's able to log on from her home um, and um, able to do that from the shelter that she's in. She's in a, a Toronto a homeless shelter for. Uh, youth between 16 and 24, um, and she's got a program uh, where people in 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 the school program where they're able to uh, actually graduate uh, as a result of of a um, they're able to graduate from the program uh, while they stay connected in school and live in the shelter. So she was 16. Uh, Anna was 16 when she uh, first. Um, ended up in a situation where she had to uh, find herself somewhat homeless. She was um, sleeping at a friend's house, uh, going from couch to couch. Um, and the, um, you know, temporary shelter in Peel, she felt found a, you know, a few days later, and then she was then located to a shelter in Etobicoke. She was so confused, she said, um, and uh, so confused that everything was crazy because I'd never really lived myself, she said, right? And today she's among hundreds of youth in Toronto who are facing adolescent and homelessness at one, adolescence and homelessness at once, right? So the population's swollen so large that it, that it was five years ago. It's, it's like three or four times what it was five years ago. So in the city's, um, in the city's family and youth shelters, there's roughly 145 kids aged 16 and 17 alone on April 1st of this year, more than twice the number staying overnight on the same day five years ago. The number doesn't include those crashing on couches, in, in alleyways, in bank lobbies, you know, outside the bank machines. Um, and the capacity for, uh, for beds, the, the bed capacity for people in this age range um, is such that there, you know, there's 200, I think there's 222 uh, beds of the 231 youth beds. They're all filled usually. And for the most part, the other balance of uh, 11 or so um, are also difficult to get into. It's very difficult to get into a shelter, by the way, whether you're an adult or a kid. Um, obviously, we take they take more concern uh, for children eventually or, or initially than they do uh, adults because we want to keep kids off the street so horrible things don't happen. Um, but it's a delicate, delicate time and delicate moment for these young people. Uh, homelessness expert, homelessness expert, Doctor Sean Kidd, 
uh, Chief of Psychology for Toronto Centre for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. Um, falling into homelessness at a young age, he says, can trigger a vicious cycle, and nearly a third of people facing homelessness in the city last spring saying they did, they, they'd first lost their home as a child or youth. So they, you know, some people remain in this homelessness um, vortex, if you will, uh, long after their, um, long, you know, long past their adulthood, right? And that becomes a big, becomes a big issue for a lot of people. It becomes a big issue that, um, you know, we're, we're, you know, there, there's a cycle here of unsettled uh, health as, you know, mental health, physical health. When you go from, um, when you go from a situation of, of a kid, like, come on, man, it's hard enough to be a teenager, let alone worrying about where you're going to sleep and where you're going to find food and, you know, and then trying to stay in school. So these kids are really, really, really uh, working hard at trying to graduate, stay in the program, stay in the shelter. Um, so she can dig into her allowance. She gets an allowance that she receives every month from Ontario Works. That kind of helps her pay for stuff. Um, Ontario Works, by the way, is a social assistance program, which helps a whole lot of people. Um, but both the number of kids, though, 18 and under in shelters, uh, it dropped during the pandemic. But after rising for years, it's now back on the upswing, including an increase in teens between 11 and adulthood. So there are 11-year-old homeless kids that don't have a place to go. A major factor in numbers rising again over the last year has been the loosening of pandemic border restrictions, meaning more refugee families are once again leaning on the system. Uh, on April 1st, uh, there were 567 children under 18 in city-administered shelters, some 40% refugees. A year later, that number has nearly doubled to 1,100 or so, with 50% of them children of refugees. So through the pandemic, some youth shelters, uh, some youth and other shelters, excuse me, have struggled to keep up with their education. So in late 2020, the star spoke to three siblings in a Toronto family shelter, who struggled with access to the internet in their shared room to log on to their class, right? So we're able to, uh, you know, to understand this, to understand this kind of homelessness, uh, really requires, um, really, I guess, a deeper, a deeper look at the, of, of the whole social system, correct? But even with additional supports that she's allotted from laptops to one-on-one tutoring, therapy sessions, adjusting, just adjusting for her hasn't been easy, but it hasn't been easy. She's had a hard time getting used to, you know, entering entirely new rhythms, um, you know, traveling from places she's not familiar with. You know, it's hard for her to get to class. And then when she's in class, you know, she's the girl that uh, lives in a shelter, right? Uh, hard to make friends. Hard to be invited over for uh, for sleepovers, right? Hard to be invited over to parties when you're that girl who sleeps in a shelter. You know, most parents don't want their kids hanging around with somebody who sleeps in a shelter. I mean, come on. Seriously, though? This girl's amazing. This young person is amazing. She's working hard to graduate. She's doing everything she's can, she can. She's looking forward to getting a part-time job. So the classmate, you know, some of her classmates will needle her for an explanation of why she's taking a different bus home and she tries to handle the rocky relationships with her family at the same time from afar. But from months and months into this thing, right? Months into this thing. After five months after arriving, she sees an opportunity to drown out the din of family strife and focus on where she wants to go in her life. She wants to do something in her life. There's always lines 
not noting that the, they, you know, that, that there's, uh, she's already seen another young person get kicked out because there's lines that they crossed, including bringing in weapons, drugs, alcohol, using hateful language, right? Uh, the program filters out more complex cases, barring youth with disruptive behavioral issues, lesser, vi lesser violations such as breaking uh, the shelter curfew would also come with consequences such as extra chores the next day. But it, they, don't, they don't really look at throwing people out. They don't really look at asking people to leave unless they've breached uh, you know, the rules such that it's you know, such a big deal and that putting other people at risk, right? But the fact that there are so many young people out there, so if you have a chance to, um, to invest, to make a donation to any of the youth shelters that are out there, and you can find them all online, right? Do what you can. Bring them food. Bring them clothes. You know, these kids need a break, right? It's like I said, it's tough enough to be a teenager, but imagine being a teenager with no place to live, Right? So now that there's a shelter that's directed specifically for teenagers, there's also one downtown in Toronto near the fort, near the near the uh, the um, the uh, city hall. There's a hotel that's been um, that's been um, changed and been uh, adapted to or adopted such that they can use it for youth shelter uh, beds. Um, but it's full. And there's a lot of violence, by the way. There's a lot of violence amongst the kids, you know, some kids that are a lot more streetwise than some of the ones that end up there, right? So it's it becomes a real thing, um, not only to try to fit in, but to survive while in an environment like that. But this young girl, Anna, she's doing everything she can to graduate. She says nothing's going to get in her way. She's got plans, and nothing, no one's going to stop her from her plans. So you got to love that, right? you got to love the inspiration. But um, anyway, we're going to be right back here. We've got our guest on standby. His name is Vincent Cheng. Uh, he's an infinity coach and psychotherapist. So as soon as we come back from break here, we're going to be joined by him, and we're going to talk about how he turned his life around, sold everything, and found a deeper meaning, and now helping others find their deeper meaning. You're listening to The Road to Recovery. My name is Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. And welcome back to The Road to Recovery. My name is Yona Bud, and I appreciate you more than you know. You're the best audience ever. We love you guys. And uh, not a lot to say, you guys. Love you folks, I'm, so, I'm supposed to say now. We got a message that says we can't use guys because it's it doesn't uh, appear, it doesn't, um, what's the word? It doesn't include everybody. So thank you, folks, for joining us. It sounds a little odd, but we'll do that anyway. We really appreciate you being here with us. And my guest right now is Vincent Cheng. He's an infinity coach and psychotherapist. He's also the author of Heal the Source and founder and CEO of Deepening Connections. Uh, although Vincent calls Canada his home, he's explored 32 countries across the globe. The expo exploration has anchored his connections to diverse cultures, formulating a deep understanding of humanity at large. Since 2013, Vincent has traveled to Japan annually and lived with Zen Buddhists, monks in a 600-year-old temple until COVID-19 prohibited his travel in 2020. He went from becoming an engineer. He wanted to uh, conduct um, music and conduct um, um, bands and, uh, and orchestras, and he continued to do that. Uh, then he kind of just sold everything, apparently, to travel, to do what he needed to do, and uh, he's doing what he can now to help others find their space and find their place. Vincent, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, my friend. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Okay, so you were electrical. Let's get to it. When you were electrical engineer, before you felt a deeper calling, what changed for you? What what happened? What led to that turning point? 
I think, you know, it's uh, pain you know, or death by a thousand cuts, like the denial of the pain of, you know, this is something I was supposed to do, you know, get a good job, get a stable career, uh, become a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer, or, or nothing. Um, that's what I've you know, been told. I see friends around me doing the same thing. And as I went into it, I think I was in first year already, and I realized this is not what I'm supposed to do. This is, I thought this was going to make me happy. Uh, I didn't go to class. And, but that's where music started to come in more. And yeah, it, it's, you could say something that was supposed to make me happy and fulfilled in life, I felt miserable in. And so that made me question. I asked the bigger question, what is, what is the meaning of my life? Like, is, I'm, I thought I was supposed to do everything I'm supposed to do, but why am I unhappy? Interesting. So when you sold the story, you know, the, 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 the setup for having you on here uh, with my producer, you know, put some stuff together for us. Um, sure. but you sold you sold all your possessions. Like, I know what it's like to clear out my closet and get rid of stuff I don't use anymore. But like, I'm not sure I could get rid of everything. Like what, what, what led to the decision and how did that free you, so to speak? You know, uh, growing up as, you know, going to church and hearing there's a, there's a, there's a reading of, you know, the rich man can enter heaven. And he, he, he went and went after Jesus to say, how do I, how do I get, get to the, the next level here? And he's like, sell everything and just follow me. And he, he, he hung his head down in shame and he, he walked away. Like I've heard this for so long, but I didn't understand it. And I think over many, many years collecting stuff, you know, I, I had stuff. Yeah. People said, yeah. you know, I could open my own Blockbuster. I know Blockbuster's not around anymore. <laughs> uh, but I had everything. And, but there was something empty. There was something missing. So I'm like, if the more I got, the more I, why do I still feel empty? And it was when I, when I saw a DVD of uh, Herbert von Karajan, you know, he, he revolutionized the orchestra in Berlin. You know, he became one of the greatest conductors up there. And I saw his yeah. biography. He did this. He said, I want to achieve my dream to become Berlin's Philharmonic. But he, he couldn't even afford bread. He was living in host homes. He was starving. And he did that. And that's what it clicked for me. I'm like, I'm holding on all of this, all this stuff that is empty to me. But yet, I'm blocking myself from achieving a dream, which was also to conduct Berlin, which I actually went to Berlin to conduct. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, people have to understand that you're, you're living the dream. You explored more than 30 countries um, and uh, conducted uh, all kinds of uh, music and all kinds of musicians. Uh, what was the favorite country you, you visited out of the 30, if I can ask? <laughs> yeah, everyone asks me this, but I think it, it is it's Japan. <laughs> Uh, Japan, like th that, there's a culture to it, but, but the spirituality and the, the, the whole aspect of letting go and detachment, you know, the Zen philosophy. So I, I lived with a monk and I yeah. explored very deeply searching for the meaning of life. Like, why am I unhappy? What is happiness? What is success? What is life all about? And through that experience, I was finally, I felt the most freedom not attached to anything and that 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 level of being was what made me explore even further you know to go down this 
become a psychotherapist, become a coach, and then expand the human potential that, you know, you're taught that you're only limited. You know, get a good job, go to school, and get a family, and, and retire happy. And I see everyone around me, they've, they've done all of that. Why are they not truly happy? I didn't feel that vibe of, you know, fulfillment or happiness, especially in me. So going to Japan, like really emptying, I, I mean, I disconnected from the world for three weeks. Nobody knew where I was pretty much, and nobody contacted me. So. And, and did you really sell everything, buddy? I mean, did you get rid of, did you get rid of like everything? What were you, what were you left with it. after you did the, every, every, did, like, we're talking about simple possessions. I mean, did you get rid of that, you know, that favorite thing that your mom bought you when you were a kid, like everything or just things that seemed to be, you know, holding you back? Oh, I, I, I mean, of course I did keep a few things, but in my mind, I completely yeah. detached, like, yeah. Like my house, my the ridiculous sports car that I got, right? <laughs> like everything, all the collectibles. Right now, if I had nothing, I would still tell you like I'm the same person. I, I'm just filled with joy and, and peace and calm. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I do have still a few things, but it was the the, the inner detachment that I'm talking about. Yeah. You know, that yeah, that that yeah. that's something different. Like. Most people find that maybe when they're forced to, your house burns down, like a hurricane comes in, and you're like, what, what was I holding on all, all this time? And it gives you a real deep self-reflection. And I, 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 I chose to move to a place of fulfillment and, and happiness versus chasing after something that kept keeping me empty. Interesting. I, it's it's interesting. I find that with a lot of my patients that <clears throat> I've had people come into therapy as lawyers and come out of therapy deciding they want to be bakers and candlestick makers and you mm -hmm. know build 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 houses and fix cars and you know just a, a, yep. a change in life. Um, now that you're sort of back in the fold of you know I would say regular society, so to speak, um, are you still uh, are you still less is more or have you kind of you know, got stuff again. Yeah, this is, it's been a real challenge. You know, we've talked about integration. So I've gone right. all the way out, you know, chase after wealth, get as much as you can and fulfill myself that way, but still felt empty. And then I detached from everything and left, you know, just wear a robe and, you know, have a water bowl all day. It, it, and I think now, you know, building the new company and really it was my own, mindset or my own conditioning of my relationship of money or material things that was the right. block so by getting so much of it and still lacking but also avoiding it and denying it you know i wasn't solving the inner problem and so right now it's looking at you know material things or money like as a concept of how to use it does it really give me that joy or am i chasing after it from a lack motivation versus, uh, you know, I am hopeful, uh, but I do enjoy it, right? 
Right. So it, it's one. I guess it's you know one thing to kind of not quote quote unquote just to not to paraphrase, but uh, you know it's one thing to worship your growth or worship your things, so to speak, <clears throat> versus realizing that all they really are is things, and it's not really where your happiness comes from. We're going to come back. Um, you're going to stick with me, eh? We can come back after break um, and continue if it's okay with you. Uh, I'm talking with Vincent Cheng. Uh, he's an infinity coach and psychotherapist, uh, also the author of Heal the Source and founder and CEO of Deepening Connections. He's going to join us for the last segment right after break. You're on the road to recovery. This is Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. Welcome back. You're on the road to recovery. This is our last segment of the evening. Boy, time flies. Just seems like we just started, and here we are towards the end. My guest, Vincent Cheng, is with me. He's uh, hanging on for us to close out with us this evening. Thank you for joining us, Vincent. Uh, we were talking about, if you're not just joining us right now, Vincent's an infinity coach, psychotherapist. He was an engineer, sold all his uh, worldly possessions, tried to find himself, did a really good job of it, apparently, and now is helping others do the same thing. He's the author of Heal the Source and founder and CEO of Deepening Connections. Uh, Vincent, welcome back. Um, living in a Zen Buddhist environment, that's a minimalistic uh, existence, at the, to say the least. Um, was it hard for you to sort of live without? I mean, the, the adaption for you or being able to sort of get to the point where you could live without TV and cars and I guess the, you know, I'd love to get to the fancy car you sold. But anyway, that's another story. <laughs> uh, but I'd, I'd like, you know, like, so how were you able to integrate into a world with a whole lot of not much? That was one of the biggest, like, shockers to me because when I was at the temple, he had everything. You know, there was still Wi-Fi, <laughs> there was still TV, and, and I'll, I'll, I mean, I'll, I'll be open. And he's like, the first night, he asked me, he opened the fridge, he's like, do, do you want a beer? <laughs> I was like, what? I thought I'm here to, you know. Well. I, I was, it took me a while, but it, 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 it I think he was trying to, teach me that it's not about either or, you know, it's easy to yeah. be, you know, like yeah. completely yeah. peaceful and enlightened when there's nothing. Um, yeah. But it's, it's the challenge of integrating it into your daily life. You know, they say when you're enlightened, before enlightenment, you chop wood and carry water. After enlightenment, you chop wood and carry water. <laughs> Are you chopping wood and carrying water these days? <laughs> I was trying as best I can. That <laughs> a boy. Okay, let's get to uh, let's get to the kind of you know where you are now. We don't have a whole lot of time in the last segment, sure. but let's get that's kind of where you are now. You came back to Canada in 2014. Um, but before we get there, how cool is it? It must be so cool to conduct. Like I, you know, the whole I watch great conductors. I, I, I like symphony. I watch great conductors. Uh, they they are so um, rhythmic and 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 just so so smooth and it, it's like it's just like watching dance um it must be so cool to have that kind of control over over musicians and singers and people like that tell me a little bit about that and what that does for you wow i and yeah it to me i've always had this 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 drive of becoming the best you know the best at everything uh, whether it be basketball whether it be video games or 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 even music, and to me, the epitome of music as a musician 
is a conductor. You know, as as I stand in front of a hundred people, they're all playing a different instrument. There's like yeah. three hundred singers. Yeah. I have to know everything and everyone and hear everything all at once. You know, imagine the level of ability that I have to train for to get there. Yeah, how did you do that, by the way? How did you, how did you get like through all the you know all the finding yourself and all the soul searching and all the spirituality? How do you suddenly you know become a conductor such that people actually let you conduct? <laughs> I didn't find myself until after my conducting, so I was integrating. Ah, yeah, gotcha. so I was okay, chasing okay. after power, right? I was chasing after ah, you know, okay. becoming the best and that fame, but still in what I call the lack mindset in my book, um, yeah. which didn't fulfill me. And, you know, I was there in Berlin. I'm like, I was ready to crawl on my hands and knees. I sold everything. I, I was going to live in the, the tear garden, the park. I didn't care. I wanted that dream so bad. But it, it was, then, then what? If I'm the best conductor in the world, then what? Exactly. And when I realized that, I was, um, I was still empty. If I achieved that in my mind then, I was, I was still feeling empty. That's when I decided, wait, there's something else I had to do. Yeah. I had to explore. Because, because development never ends, right? Like we, we, you know, we tell patients, you know, patients say to me, when do you think I'm going to be healed? And I'm going to say, well, what do you mean by healed? And, you know, mm -hmm. you're constantly going to be growing and, and hopefully doing better and being better and so on. Um, so hopefully you've learned, or not hopefully, my, my guess is you've learned uh, through your journey that there really isn't the end. There really isn't the top, the finish, I'm the best, there's nothing after this. It just keeps going, right? And I guess that, I guess it was a power grab, right? Kind of an ego grab for you, the conducting piece? Yeah. I think growing up, you know, really being, you know, like bullied or squashed or told I can't do anything and then being, a lot of people were jealous of my talent and it, it really helped, like, you know, keep me so insecure that I had to chase and prove myself by becoming the best, whatever. Um, but it's, it's really now, you know, I have this quote, I have this beautiful scroll, it's like, and it's in the book too. Success is not the path to happiness. Happiness is the path to success. Yeah, so man. If, you're, if yeah, you love man. what you're doing, you will be successful. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, we only got a couple of, I think we, I'm getting a two minute notice here. I want to okay, get to the sure. book real quick. You developed the method and the book is called Healing Source. Really quickly, um, give me an idea. What's, what's behind the method? Give me the, uh, the ABCs as quick as you can. It's, it's really creating the space of getting to what you truly need. And, you know, often we're not able to be so honest and authentic with what we're feeling with right now in this moment. All our defenses come in. It's like a denial or a projection and all of that. But through this technique, by asking yourself and getting and really sitting with yourself, it's almost like creating a part of you that comes up that is in pain or, 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 or whatever it wants to express, and you give it him or her space or they in space and really sit there with that question. What is it that you really need right now? And it usually points back to, you know, I was a child. I never got approval. I never got accepted. I was always rejected. I, mm -hmm. I, I couldn't understand myself. Once yeah. you, like going back in time, uh, yeah. but doing it in, on an ongoing basis where that, that is the journey, right? You're talking about, you know, are you, am I healed yet? Well, no, you, you can, if you do this every day, you, you, you are healing. You, 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 it's a uh, constant it's heal. 
Exactly. It's a journey, not, not, the, not the destination. I'm talking to Vincent Cheng. He's an infinity coach and psychotherapist, the author of Heal the Source. You can find him at Deepening Connections. Thank you for your time, Vincent. Uh, we've had a, we're kind of out of time here tonight. Um, so I don't know, man. I just keep so sad when we have to say goodnight for the last uh, part of the show. But uh, I look forward to seeing you all next uh, next Saturday night. We've got a lot of stuff to do. Uh, it's uh, Cancer Month and uh, Breast Cancer Month. We're going to have some stuff around that um, hopefully next week. And I uh, just want to share with you that uh, stay healthy out there. Be nice to each other. Be kind. Spread nice, as my mom would say. May she rest in peace. It's easier to say something nice than to say something not so nice. So try to spread nice, be good to those, love the ones you're with, give them a hug, tell them how important they are. You're important to me, so let them know how important they are to you. We'll be back next week on the Road to Recovery. This is Yonabud, 640 Toronto.